0: West Virginia University Press is pleased to announce Jim Lewis's fourth novel, Ghosts of New York. Shakespeare and Company in New York City will host the online launch event on Friday, April 2nd at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. To register, visit their website, shakeandco.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Have you heard the good news? Israeli archaeologists announced that they discovered new fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Cave of Horror. First of all, yes, that's its real name. And secondly, it's part of the group of caves in the West Bank where the original Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1940s and 50s. It's unclear why these fragments were discovered after so many years, or why the team of archeologists was sent to search through the caves now. I'm not casting dispersions on the discovery. These are simply the sort of questions that must be asked. However, these questions don't always get asked. In the March issue, Madeline Schwartz writes about the curious case of some other Dead Sea Scroll fragments that were discovered in 2002 and sold to the Museum of the Bible that later turned out to be forgeries. I spoke with Schwartz about those forgeries, the concept of provenance, the black market for antiquities, and other issues presented by personal and public collections of treasures taken from foreign lands. So for those who aren't biblical scholars, what is the relevance of the Dead Sea Scrolls and where did this new crop originate?
1: The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 40s and 50s um, in the cave system known as Qumran, that's located in the West Bank. And the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was very, very important and very exciting to a lot of different people because these these scrolls um, are some of, are some of our earliest examples of, of biblical texts, and also have a whole host of other material relating to the history of Judaism, the history of the Bible, um, that is a real treasure trove for scholars um, and anyone interested in the the past. In the early 2000s, around 2002, some more fragments started coming onto the market that were often accompanied by a sort of vague backstory of having been discovered um, in a Swiss vault and being tied through their ownership to the original discovery being tied to the family of the dealer who had negotiated the original deal with the Dead Sea Scrolls. But, of course, many scholars raise the question, why are these coming on the market now, and where were they before? So,
0: I guess, why did they... I I think an obvious follow-up to this would be, why did they go onto the market as opposed to going to scholars or a university or some sort of... um, I don't know, some sort of body dedicated to broadening our understanding of the uh, the uh, uh, histories you've discussed.
1: Yeah, um, so that's a, a great question and not one that I think I have a definite answer to. What I will say is that these fragments, as they appeared on the market and as people who have studied um, their dissemination onto the market, um, got a better sense of, of, of what they looked like and... And what they contained were a little bit different from the original Dead Sea Scrolls. As I mentioned, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls have a lot of biblical material, but actually, only a, a quarter or a third of it is material we might recognize as really being from the Old Testament. A lot mm-hmm. of the other material in it has other religious works that, that is considered non canonical. What was interesting about the, the new fragments coming onto the market is that they were nearly all from the Old Testament to begin with, and also focusing on passages from the Bible that might be of particular interest to people who um, who were of certain religions, especially Christians. Um, so, according- Evangelical
0: Christians, specifically.
1: Well, so they, they were sold, in fact, to a number of evangelical institutions, and they often featured passages that either are considered by by many evangelical Christians to look forward to the coming of Christ. Um, So one Mm -hmm. example of that would be a passage about Abraham and the sacrifice of his son Isaac, which is seen as as an anticipation, I suppose, of the relationship between Christ and God. Psalm 22, which is quoted in the New Testament, or the passage that I wrote about, which describes the coming of of God in this very dramatic way.
0: Mm -hmm. So these were discovered in a vault in Switzerland, but it has like a very vivid mental image of how it was found, but it also obscures the provenance and it isn't necessarily provable. It's just like, oh yeah, we found this vault. Um, Can you discuss earlier instances of religious artifacts that were discovered like this. I mean, I'm specifically I'm thinking about the uh, fakes you were telling me that came from the USSR.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that the art market, unlike an academic world in which people are one would hope really trying to get to the heart of what something truly is, in an art market you have buyers and you have sellers and uh Sellers may be looking for something and in in a sense, beauty or truth may be in the eye of the beholder. Um, One -hmm. thing that I thought was very interesting while reporting this story is that at the same time that I was um, reporting this story, I ended up going, doing a a different article for a different magazine about fakes in a very different context uh, in the context of the Russian avant-garde, where the Russian avant-garde, very different from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh is a period of a very interesting art between sort of the the end of around the beginning of the the twentieth century that was very hard for westerners to to access and for many years diplomats would essentially go to the u s s r bring and and exchange items that were difficult for people to access there and and pay large sums of money for works of art that they were told were uh were made by artists working in terrible conditions uh, who often had starved or uh, lived horrible lives in the USSR, and and these works of art became central to um, to the Western canon. Research has now shown that many of those works are fake, that they were made of material that would never have existed at the time when the artists were working, and that even some of the artists who whose biographies were being touted to people who are buying their works did not even exist and I think it really goes to show what a marketplace can do a marketplace of people who strongly believe or who may wish to believe in what they're being sold can can do to our understanding of of objects because often I think anyone many people have experienced that if you wish for something to be true you may Ignore some of the, the facts showing that that is not the case.
0: That, yeah, the original Russian troll. <laughs> Hard not to respect the hustle. <laughs> um, but speaking of the, the market, the Green family, who own Hobby Lobby and created the Museum of the Bible, where some of these fragments were displayed, recently returned over 1,100 illegally sourced artifacts to Iraq and Egypt. Um, can you talk about how the Greens uh, specifically have influenced the antiquities market?
1: Yeah. So the the fragment I wrote about for this issue of Harper's is one of 16 so-called Dead Sea Scrolls that uh, were purchased by the Green family for their Museum of the Bible. And the Green family started collecting antiquities around 2009 with the idea of putting together a museum that would showcase the Bible And this was, um, there's a really wonderful book about this that I would urge anyone who's interested in this topic to read called Bible Nation, um, by two scholars named Candida Moss and Joel Baden. And in their book, they describe how on the one hand, this family, which is a family with strong evangelical Christian beliefs, Hobby Lobby for, uh, you know, for those who might not remember, is of course uh, the company that filed a lawsuit about the contraceptive mandate that has resulted in, uh, what is the, the legal term, uh, closely held corporations no longer having to cover contraceptives uh, for their employees. Mm-hmm. So members of this family essentially started buying objects that they might put in this museum and at a very at a breakneck sp- speed uh, in fact in, in that book bible nation there's the the authors describe how at one point the green family was putting so much money into the antiquities market that actually the value of antiquities rose as they were buying mm. and as both that book and subsequent reporting and in fact a government investigation uh, subsequently showed a lot of that work was was looted, much of it from the Middle East. Um, And they're now, the museum has been in the process of of sending that back. So as recently as this January, actually, um, 5,000 or so manuscripts and bits of papyrus were sent to Egypt, which had claimed that it was improperly or illegally taken from the country um, during the Arab Spring. Um, Before that, other objects were sent back to Iraq. Um, Hobby Lobby has had to pay. Uh, $3 million in a settlement to the US government. And that has obviously raised questions about their collection.
0: Speaking of this market, it's not just booming because of the Greens, right? It's, it's It's booming because of the forever wars that are taking place across the Middle East and because of Facebook, which I know, hard to believe that Facebook is doing something bad. But they are, in fact, allowing illegal and damaging behavior on their platform. Um, so in these secret Facebook groups, or not even that secret Facebook groups, it's really apparent that these, the artifacts that are being sold were looted during wartime. And they are just, you know, again, this is on Facebook. This is about as public as you can be with illegal activity of this sort. So could you discuss that? phenomenon and how that is also impacting the not just the market of antiquities but like how you know the research of these ancient cultures
1: yeah um well obvious I think it's been well known for a long time that instability leads to to looting and leads to to stealing and leads to uh the theft of Of antiquities um, from their countries of origin often in the hands of collectors outside of the country and this has been especially prevalent I would say in Syria over the past few years and also in other parts of the Middle East and I I would highlight here that one of the reasons that this matters is not only for a an academic reason of you know are we going to be able to understand these objects if we don't know their full history but because one it's actual theft, yes, <laughs> and two, I would say the looting of antiquities actually ends up funding a lot of other activities that most people would consider criminal, whether that's money laundering or even in some cases terrorism. so the art market, which may seem you know from the outside to be this very arcane and precious thing that stands apart from our political lives, is often at the center of. lot of other big and and important questions and that's one of the reasons I think that that this topic is is important where Facebook comes into this I would say is it's maybe not as the originator of these problems but certainly as a vehicle for this market to function there's a group called um the AFAR project that documented pretty exhaustively in in 2019 um how many Objects uh, ranging from things like mosaics to, in some cases, human remains mm. were being sold on on Facebook groups, really out in the open. The academics who are members of this project, you, you know, without a huge amount of technical or coding expertise, were able to very quickly find a lot of things for sale that shouldn't have been there for a host of reasons. Since then, and since there's been some outcry and, and pushback, Facebook has said that it is banning the sale of looted antiquities on its platform. That said, to my understanding, the ban still takes the form of people have to report illegal activity as they see it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to have some questions of how effective or how, how widespread that ban is actually going to be.
0: Right. I mean, that's the same problem with the extremism that's been going on in Facebook, with with something like QAnon, where it's like, they'll say that they're shutting things down, or even, I mean, there have been plenty of articles written about the very flawed review slash reporting of uh, inappropriate material or illegal material on Facebook. So again, it's it's a nice gesture that's probably not going to do too much to uh, restore um, these objects that actually uh, belong to the history of humanity and not just somebody who's like, oh, yeah, I want to buy a mummy.
1: Yeah, I don't think I know enough about, you know, the inner workings of, of Facebook to, to know how this decision came about or, or what they were thinking. Um, but the truth is that it's that academics who have spent time working on this have have found very obvious cases of of illegal activity as it comes to antiquities and and you know it's it's damaging on on many levels it's damaging to the artifacts. It's damaging to our sense of history um and it's damaging to the people who live in those countries from whom their you know cultural heritage is being stolen and and taken away and and often you know, put into someone's home and will never see. The light of day and be an object from which one can learn
0: yeah because i mean the other thing about looting is that it's looting is not uh you know you just sort of walk up and take something it's it can be a violent act too it has its own dis- it can have its own disgusting features that you won't ever know about because you're just buying you just see this object as an object and not something that has a history and so, you know, there is this ongoing problem. You mentioned Afar that's sort of trying to curb this, um, this really shameful uh, selling of antiquities. And you mentioned that this, these, these objects will go into somebody's home and be removed from the rest of the world and all the potential uh, benefits that could come from sharing these objects with the world. Um, so with the Museum of the Bible... Why, you know, I want to go back to this question of which which sorts of uh, institutions get to have looted artifacts. Because the Museum of the Bible, uh, I've heard it's really fun to go to, um, uh, but, you know, there are other very famous museums like the British Museum, the Met, the Louvre, that, you know, these are clearly... Stolen objects that have been transported from their country of origin, and there's no there there's no um, ETA for them going back. The Elgin marbles are still the elgin marbles They're It doesn't matter what Greece thinks they're going to stay in the British museum
1: I mean, what you say is is a huge issue, and in some ways it's so huge that it's hard to even know how to really answer. The Museum of the Bible, as as we mentioned, has had to return um quite a lot of of material. I mean, thousands of of objects to their countries of origin, and has been, I would say, an object of of scrutiny or of certainly of there have been questions about it since since the beginning. If if only because of the amount of money that went into it, um, and its particular nature. But that said you know, plenty of Western materials have objects that are are looted. And when you look at the history of, of archaeology, it is often a very violent and difficult to read about history of Europeans going to places and, you know, considering that, that those objects are, are rightfully theirs. And it's very tied up with, with many other questions of, of colonialism. The question is what, what to do about looted works and who even gets to decide. And that's not a question that I am in any way prepared to answer, but I, I think that there are huge gaps in even our understanding of, of what steps to take in, in deciding what should be what should belong where, what should be exhibited where, who has claims as an outsider to the world of antiquities? You know, as someone who's not working in the art market, one thing that has always struck me as odd is that there are specific cutoff dates about what is acceptable and not acceptable in the art market. Often around um, 1970, when there was a UNESCO convention that touched upon looting and the existence of this convention and some legislation that followed means that um, it is in some ways easier to buy and sell things that left their country of origin before 1970, before this convention was put in place. But if you think about it not as an art seller, but just as a person, and you think, okay, well, in 1970, something was decided to be bad. Well, was it not bad in 1969? Was it not bad? Before And then you end up having to ask yourself a lot of questions that I think it would be expedient for many institutions to ask themselves about where their objects come from, how they were collected, so to speak, or how they were taken in other cases and, and what, what the implications of that information really are.
0: Right. I think it's pretty clear what the Green family wanted to do with the Museum of the Bible. you know, they put it in Washington, DC. They wanted it to be, you know, an act of generosity to the public and say, look, you can come here and you can learn more about the Bible. You can see these things because faith is it's intangible. It's not really provable. But here are some objects that can that are tangible that can help you understand your 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 faith. And that impulse is not so different from something like the British Museum. Where it's like let's show our power by demonstrating, you know these m- magnificent treasures that came from our colonies. let us it's it's a benevolent thing, but it's also a, a prestige thing, right? And regardless of how you know which which side it falls on, and again, that's not there's probably a million other little tiny things that uh, antiquities dealers antiquities historian is probably screaming at me right now for not mentioning, but you know, it shapes how we perceive history and what has value right because you know something changes when these objects are displayed in a museum they become something more than the objects they become part of this they they're stamped with not just an onth- authenticity stamp but also like a you know this is important this is relevant you need to see this to understand or to take part in something larger than yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean I I think I think every museum to a certain extent has an agenda, you know. I I wouldn't want to speak for the the green family. I've been to the Museum of the Bible once in December of 2019, I would say, and How was it? It's a it's a really interesting Museum, Um, I actually found that as a museum goer, there were things about it that I really appreciated. There's a lot of attention paid to making it a a good experience and an interesting experience to people who are coming to objects without a scholarly background, and it is extremely interactive. There is a, a part of the museum where you sort of follow the path of the Book of Exodus and go through the parted Red Sea Hmm. which i had never experienced in a museum before and honestly thought was was really interesting and and fun that said as a museum of the bible a central theme is really the the importance of the bible in all areas of of history and you know there's a section for example about the bible in american history and one could ask oneself where do, do we see the Bible in American history? And is it fair to see it as a, a, a central document, for example? And is the Bible the most important religious text out there? Which is certainly a sense that one might have going through this museum. Um, right. And obviously, um, scholars with, with a stronger sense of religious history would have, would have more to say about the specifics of the displays and and of what they're they're trying to do and beyond what I I could give but I obviously there's a huge symbolic value in a museum that promotes the primacy of of one religious text the bible is presented as a a somewhat static text when in mm. fact it is as, as this very example shows a text that came together after a very long and contentious history. There's also a symbolic element of having a Museum of the Bible that is very near the Washington Mall, just a few blocks Mm -hmm. away from the Capitol building in the heart of the American Capitol. Um, And that sends a specific message that I would say resonates beyond the particularities of, of the exhibitions.
0: Yes. And how would you describe the museum's place among biblical scholars or the academy itself? Like, is there, because again, it just, it just seems like that, like Wolf of Wall Street thing where it's like some, some new money tried to do what old money does and they got caught and they have to be punished now. Uh, Not that what old money does is right, but old money keeps doing, you know, the old money being like the Met, the the British Museum, the Louvre, they are still allowed to do the the, the bad thing, <laughs> you know?
1: I mean, I think that, you know, the Museum of the Bible has, has received a lot of scrutiny from its inception, in part because it has such a clear, it, it has seemed to have had a, such a clear mission in terms of the message that it wants to send. And secondly, you know, its reputation has not been helped by having to send back thousands of, of looted objects. That said, you know, the questions that that museum has to ask itself and that visitors of the museum, I think, should ask themselves of of where this object, these objects come from and what story are they trying to tell? Those are questions that anyone who goes to any museum has to, to start asking because because museums do have particular histories and often seek to, uh, I would say, put forth particular narratives. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's what an exhibition is, right? That's part of, you know, there's a narrative. This is, you know, what we have from this movement or we chose to include these things and not other things. It's all, I mean, again, these are huge questions that institutions face all the time. But if you're, again, if you're just a museum visitor, it may not be immediately apparent to you, right? It's, you know, but, you know, putting that sort of, um, putting that incredibly heady, difficult to answer uh, uh, philosophical questions, uh, ethical questions about the nature of institutions. um, You write about in this article, the art fraud insights team. Can you discuss their formation? Because these are the these this is the team that uh, provided evidence that these fragments these new these new fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls were not real and and in a way that a lot of biblical scholars who had kind of sort of brushed it off brushed off inconsistencies had to face up to kind of their complicity in allowing these to be out in the world.
1: I would say to both of your points that the the discussion around provenance, around the origin of objects is really changing and it's going to be very interesting to see where it goes because there has been a lot of movement it seems to me at least as you know from the outside in both the scholarly community and in the museum community to really make sure that both people within and without museums understand where objects are from and that that information is readily available. Obviously, it's hugely important for the ethical implications that we discussed. It's also really important for financial implications because in general, I think, you know, no one wants to think that what they own is either fake or going to lead to them having to deal with a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. The Art Fraud Insights team who I talked about and talked with um, are a very interesting group of of experts who have been working on bringing, I would say, forensic technology to some of these questions and have worked on a whole range of of projects, you know, from, from Jackson Pollock all the way back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the work that they do is really, really incredible. I mean, talking to some of the, the scholars who are themselves professors or and, and curators in their own right, I really was like, I felt like I was like being brought into this world of like art crime, CSI. Um <laughs> Yeah. It's like it's
0: like you hear the day of like the art fraud in, art fraud insights team and it's like, okay, so you got like a hacker, you got a knives <laughs> expert, you got the calligraphy, <laughs> the historical calligraphy expert well, all coming together. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean I certainly think that like if if someone wants to make like an ocean's 14 <laughs> about archive, like I would watch that in a heartbeat um, because they really do pretty amazing work. Um, I mean, as, as one example, one of the big questions with these fragments was, okay, the objects seemed old, but they also seemed weird. And I'm sure there's a more technical piece of vocabulary I could use in this case, but we can stick there with that sus. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um and by y- using a, a whole host of really technical material that essentially involved scraping material with like a kind of high-sky sc- scalpel and then putting it on a tiny diamond and passing light through it um wow. they were able to to really look at at the molecules that made up this material um and get a better sense of of what it was and see things that would that would have stuck out to the naked eye as perhaps strange and had struck other scholars as strange about these objects but that couldn't be fully explained so as one example it had seemed very odd to a number of scholars that their writing on these texts was very uneven and unusual and anyone who works with ancient texts knows that like ancient scribal culture was not a world of personal expression and like if you (laughs) wrote in a certain era you wrote in a certain way so it's odd to have letters that that just look out of place and what this team was able to show which i thought was so fascinating was that one of the reasons that the letters looked odd is that the the fragments were composed of of ancient material but not parchment which would have been treated to write on but actually leather and that the ink was then written on this really old piece of of material so instead of having something that was written on and then left and you know essentially dusty and covered in little bits of of dirt you had that object already that was that was old and someone had written on it so, of course, everything looked bumpy and was kind of going over the edges because it hadn't actually aged as an authentic fragment might. Right.
0: So whoever, and I mean, you you suggest this in your piece, it's again, it's not really possible to know, but the fact that somebody had access to this ancient leather that was roughly proximate to when the Dead Sea Scrolls were around, the fact that they were able to not perfectly write but write well enough to fool certain scholars it suggests that you know this might have been something that a uh, crooked biblical scholar took upon themselves to create but again, again we can't say we can't say for sure well cuz this is just this is the you know this this was provenance question
1: you know, I I don't know who created these objects and if anyone does know, they should feel free to contact me and I will talk to them gratefully. Um, right in. <laughs> but um, you know, I think that the so the, the same team that looked at the fragments in the Museum of the Bible are now looking at other fragments that come that have similar provenance as as we said, you know, there are about 70 fragments that came on the market after 2002. Um, and it's my understanding that they're now looking at at some other of these new "quote unquote" um, Dead Sea scrolls, but beyond that, it's it's very hard to to know who made these objects and how. And and you know, I think there are also big questions of you know what what else is out there. Absolutely. Um, and when did you
0: first come across this story? And do you have I guess, what was your interest in this besides the um, the sexiness of the art fraud insights team?
1: I've been interested uh, in this story for a long time, in part because before I became a journalist, um, I studied classics and I actually spent a year trying to study papyrology, which is the study of ancient papyrus. And my former professor or the, the you know, the, the guy I took courses from has been caught up in a, in a different scandal that touches upon the, the Green family and the museum of the Bible. Um, and which has of course, you know, brought some of these questions very close to home.
0: Right. What made you want to leave papyrology? <laughs>
1: The first reason is that, honestly, I was a terrible papyrologist and really, really admire people who have that skill. I do not have it at all. The second is that I ultimately like seeing history as it plays out in in the present day and asking these questions of how how what we know about the past informs our sense of the present. and like being able to ask them in this of of this year 2021 that we're living in.
0: Yes. And again, you know, going back to these questions of what is or is not publicly available, how they are pre- how they are presented, how they are understood um or, you know, having something like the Museum of the Bible on the mall in Washington DC.
1: Not quite on the mall, close to the mall.
0: Mall adjacent where you know some of the great museums of the United States are housed these artifacts it may seem like oh you know so what if somebody bought a mosaic on facebook that's their money they can do what they want with it but qu- these questions of particularly relating to archaeology the study of history they do have pretty immediate impacts on how p- politics and not just culture. How you know geopolitics and how um, certain countries are, you know, valued or not valued.
1: Yeah, I think that that those are all really important questions, and I'm you know I'm encouraged that they seem to be more and more a part of the conversation that we have about archaeology and about history in general. I would also say that intellectually, you know, the history of the Bible is such a fascinating field of study because you would think that the further you go back, the clearer it is. But actually, the further you go back, like the more of a mess it is, and the hmm. you know, the harder it is to actually have a sense of a single text or a single creed um, or even a single religion that people can organize themselves around. And I find, you know, beyond my own thinking as a journalist, I, I find this really fascinating to to ponder we think of religion as such a personal thing you know one's own relationship with the spiritual world and um, mm-hmm. and then you step back and think but that relationship has a specific history and that history is so complicated and where does the you know where does a single individual find themselves in all of this and so it's a really really thorny question for all of all of the reasons that you that you outlined, and one that I think is like endlessly debatable, reportable, discussable, um, and I hope will will launch many more discussions in the future as well.
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation, through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.